Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. This is pretty much pop, a culture podcast, a true story. The events depicted are taking place in four locations across the country in 2021. As a request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told. Exactly as occurred. This is Mark Lintonmeyer, and I, I got to question your police work there. Yeah. I'm Erica Spires, and Mark asked me to do this podcast not because I'm friendly, because actually I'm pretty unfriendly. Like, I'm doing him a favor. And I'm Brian Hurt. In these days when you say you're a fan of Holly, you got to be pretty specific about who you mean. I mean Noah Holly. And our guest. I'm Tamler Summers. I am the Lauren Malvo of the Very Bad Wizards podcast. Yes, I thought you would be a good person to have on for this topic in particular because of your book, Why Honor Matters. So that would work for any sort of gangstery thing. I don't know, this started as a true crime morality tale with the film, and now it seems to be straight up like almost Sopranos gangster media. Not to the show's benefit, in my view, but yes, that's definitely true. All right, as always, we need to set the ground rules about if we're spoiling anything, everything. I mean, we all, I think, watched all four seasons of the TV show Fargo, as well as the movie. The season four is completed some time ago already. Are we just spoiling the crap out of everything? Why not? All right. If you haven't watched all of it, hit pause, go spend the next <laughs> 40 hours getting caught up and come back and listen to this podcast. I again think like most things that if you didn't see a whole season and we're kind of mentioning a few things in a vague way about it, even if it's the ending, you're just not going to know what we're talking about, even when you start watching the season and it's fine. It'll still be surprising and enjoyable. Well, I wanted to start off about how I think Chris Rock is going to get an Emmy for his performance and getting stabbed in the final scene of the final episode. Ah, shit. Does it matter for your enjoyment of a gangster film to know whether or not the gangster dies at the end? Like, it wouldn't be a terrible surprise or change your view of the plot either way. It's like the end of The Sopranos, where it is purposely left ambiguous because it doesn't fucking matter. Right. In fact, the beginning of the last episode begins with almost an Oscar cast of this is who died in this season, right? Of all these people and almost hanging a lampshade on it because more to come, right? The show ain't over yet. And we have at least a good three, four more major characters to, to add to that list. Were you serious about Chris Rock getting an Emmy for season four? You know, I think it's going to be because he took an acting turn. I don't think he's going to win it, but I think he's going to get some recognition for his work. Unfortunately, his character is too close to who I think he is as a stand-up comedian. I don't know who he is as a person. I don't know him, but he has a persona, right? Doing stand-up and being on shows. And it's way too close to the character Loy. But he has some good moments. And I think the Academy likes when they take new turns. So I, I think he is going to get some recognition. Just a total guess. I'm not going to say he deserves one. Yeah, I didn't think he was good. And I thought he was kind of flat and not like his stand-up, both the character and the performance in it. It was like Vince Vaughn in True Detective Season 2. Why are you having Chris Rock to do this kind of boring character that doesn't make use of Chris Rock's talents, I thought, in, in really any way? 
So that was one of the most disappointing, among a lot of disappointing things in season four, that was really up there for me. Interesting. I agree it was not a great character, but I thought he gave it a little bit of life that it wouldn't have had otherwise. But season four was not the best season of this show. I don't know if it's worth saying what we thought was the best and worst of Fargo, or maybe there's someone on this podcast who didn't even like Fargo at all. Who would that be? Let's kind of go around the horn. Erica, we haven't heard from you in a little while. You were ripping on season three and saying you didn't even finish it before. Has that changed? Was four worse? What was your take on this whole thing? No, I like season four, but season three for me is still a disappointment. And more that I've like looked into things, it seems like that is how it is for a lot of people. A lot of people were also not huge fans of season four. I enjoyed it. About halfway through, it started to go the way of season three for me, where I just wasn't quite interested enough. But when I jumped back on the train, I actually enjoyed how it all ended up. It is still seasons one and two are definitely the the standouts. Then it's season four. And then for me, it's season three. So I rewatched the film yesterday and at least the first two episodes of all the seasons. And of course, all of season four recently. I enjoyed season four just fine as I was watching it, but I'm, I'm kind of detecting a pattern in all of them that like the first episode will have the movie-esque initial crime, the thing that is set up, which I thought in season two was freaking brilliant. Like just that sequence of events and unlikely coincidences and things. Then the second episode will kind of introduce the characters that are going to be investigating it, kind of laying out what's going to happen for the rest of the season. And then there is a very slow build to an eventual climax. And I guess that's the question about whether this kind of works as a series of novels. Do you need 10 hours to build to that? Or would it just be much better if the whole thing was like about five hours and just kind of get to it faster and you've got plenty of moving pieces that you can still, I mean, think about the most complicated movie that you could want in the moving pieces and how they fit together at the end. It seems like that might be where people would run out of steam is that there just ends up being a lot of dead weight in the middle. I think the difference between seasons one and seasons two, which I think are both masterpieces, maybe especially season two, but they're both incredible, and three and four, is you actually care about the characters, you're invested in them, you like them. I think Kirsten Dunst and Jesse Plemons, their characters are like, just beautiful comic creations and also really interesting. You really care about the central figures in seasons one and two, the cops and the husband. And so it's just fine to be with them in the middle of the show just because you're connected with them. You feel some connection. You care what happens to them. Whereas it's just not true in season three and four. There's nobody to grasp onto. There's nobody that you have a stake in and you really care whether they live or die. And season four added this element of people just pontificating constantly. They just start making speeches, often without provocation. They'll just go into this really long speech about the difference between Italy and the United States. And yeah, and I just found it tiresome and I couldn't get on board. It was very cool opening episode. And there was that Wizard of Oz episode, but that was very cool. It had a little bit Ethel Rita, and I liked the Jesse Buckley character, the nurse, the psychotic serial killer nurse, but Ethel Rita is not really in much of the show, and her character didn't really go anywhere. At times, you think that there's something happening, there's some awakening or something within her, and it just fizzles. Like, I thought a lot of the character arcs just fizzled in season four. 
I know that part of creating each of these seasons has been coming up with a huge cast of characters who really add to the story and make it extremely rich. I feel that this season for me was definitely overkill on that. And I would have liked to have seen more from specific type characters, Rabbi being one of them. I enjoyed that character. It was weird. It was interesting. You know, he really towed that line between is he doing the right thing or the wrong thing? I just don't understand why they can't get more into those characters. And I feel like maybe that's why for me, like remembering even season one was so long ago. And yet the main couple of characters just stick with you. Exactly. I don't remember season three. So we just rewatched seasons one and two, which is also why I think I'm so adamant about them being on an entirely different level than the third and fourth is because seasons one and two are very fresh in my mind. But you're absolutely right. You remember those characters, the Ted Danson character. Nick Offerman's speech when he is just... That's amazing. What a moment of TV making. And that's a middle episode, that just awesome rant and the siege on the prison with him. And it's brilliant. You know, and that's why I think those episodes work, even though it's a 10 episode arc for maybe a story that wouldn't otherwise justify it. For season four, I feel like I forget if the title was East West or West East. The Wizard of Oz episode is where we really started, I think, identifying with Satchel and understanding him as an actual realized character. I think it's when the show finally became interesting to me again. There, there's that dead period between the beginning and then the wrap up. And of course, 11 episodes was way too many. This, I think, was probably a six episode show that got stretched out too long. Talking about the first episode made me think of something that Mark once said. He wanted to, I think he's written introductions to books in his mind or maybe on paper and was thinking he would make a book of just introductions to books. And I want to see a whole season of episode one of Fargo's and just like watch those because those are they're so good and interesting and it's harder to end things than to begin things I get that and you know we talked about that with other movie makers as well right and J.J. Abrams has that issue but season four really did not live up to that awesome almost crazy first episode well so if we can compare just to kind of get off this just strict which did you like better theme in terms of the what makes these opening episodes these initial crimes fantastic. I was really reflecting on the difference between, I didn't notice it so sharply before, between the films and the show in terms of the role of coincidence. So that what happens in the film, there's not really a lot of coincidence. Like I think that's one of the things that seemed very fresh about the film, why I remember it as one of my favorite films. Just, I mean, from, and I think I might have only seen it that one time. But when I was telling my son about it, I was like, I've seen this four times. Like, I thought I had seen it more because so many of the scenes really emblazoned themselves on my memory. The imagery and the choices and also just the idea of incompetence <laughs> running the show. It's it's not improbable coincidences. It's entirely predictable incompetence. <laughs> And the coincidence is like somebody was driving by while they're, you know, it's not like the cop that was investigating them happened to be driving by or something. And so like the thing that I really love about that opener of season two, well, there is the coincidence of a character hitting somebody who's just committed a murder with a car. But like that character has not been introduced already. We haven't met Kirsten Dunst as her character as connected to what's going on here. So the fact that she is the one that runs into him, like that's, Yes, okay, it's a coincidence that he saw a spaceship (laughs) and that distracted him. But even that, like the spaceships, they like to hang around when horrible things are happening. Like, okay, if that's the rule, if that's the fantasy rule, 
still, there's way more just throughout the cops that are investigating happen to run across the very people that they should be looking for, whatever. You know, this just happens constantly in the TV show in a way that the giant hand of fate is working here. It doesn't have that, I want to say, gritty realism or, you know, what was funny about the original film. So I was thinking about a related thing. So in seasons one and two, I think the role of just pure chance is something that is really baked into the themes. And, you know, in season one, Lauren Malvo hits a deer. And that's why he gets connected with the Martin Freeman character. And it is this idea, like I think seasons one and two are small stories that play with absurdist themes, right? Like this is like this meaningless void where chance rules everything. They even have episode titles like The Myth of Sisyphus and they are playing up this kind of absurdist or existentialist kind of idea where we create meaning for ourselves and otherwise it's just chance that rules the day. And that's a very Coen Brothers-y thing to do, although you're right actually that Fargo isn't maybe the best example of that. No Country for Old Men is maybe where they lean into that and also a serious man. But that and what you were saying about the incompetence, but it's not just incompetence. At the center of the movie and the first two seasons, there's a weak and passive man, and he's malevolently passive. They always want to spearhead their own thing, whether it's a new lot or a butcher shop or whatever, judge intimidation, but they lack the vision, they lack the strength and the will to do it, so they involve these more ruthless people, and then everything goes to hell from there, and they try to run from it. So you have a world of pure chance. You have these weak people trying to make their own life, become leaders, become strong, but they're not capable of it. And they're the real villains of the show. They are the ones you find most despicable. So I don't find the coincidences that unlikely, or at least when they are, I think that's just part of what the show is telling us, that we're not in charge of our destinies. And to think you are is when you really start to bring destruction on yourself and everybody around you. Did that really leave the show by season four? I feel like luck, whether it's good luck, bad luck, or dumb luck, right? Gaetano shoots his face off after he stumbles, and it really brings down his brother's empire. It's maybe the best part of all of season four. We had to go back and watch it again. Yeah. After that character finally gets fully realized, and we finally have some sympathy for him, and he shoots his face off. Absolutely. But I guess the stories are so big and sprawling and now they're about race and capitalism. And so I guess that element didn't come to the forefront for me as much. But you're absolutely right. So has it always been making a comment about, I mean, I know specifically season four was about race and capitalism, but even in the part I was rewatching about season one, at least it plays with the idea, you know, the one dimensional man thing. Society's always trying to squish us into a little box. So the, the one character, Nygaard, is trying to become the Ubermensch <laughs> at the request of this very Shigura from No Country for Old Men-like character that Billy Bob Thornton is playing, who says right up to him, you know, you thought that there were rules, and there just really aren't. You know, this very existentialist take. It doesn't seem so preachy because it's more playing with this, is this a philosophy that you want to embrace? It doesn't work out so well for the characters. And in fact, the Bill Bob Thornton character is probably torturing him by dangling this in front of him because he evidently likes to torture everybody. 
Yeah, although what's interesting about season one is that unlike, say, the William H. Macy character in the movie, Lester Nygaard starts to buy his own shit. Like, he starts to think, oh, wait, I am strong. I am capable. I do have this vision. And he starts to actually do some terrible things that require, like, he frames his brother and then he avoids dying by sending, this is one of the worst things that anybody does in all four seasons, when he sends his new Asian wife, I don't remember her name, into the store because he's worried that he would be shot if he went. But that's ultimately his downfall, that he starts to think he's somebody he's not because he thinks then that he can fuck with Lauren Malvo. But he's so out of his league when it comes to that. And that's what ultimately brings him down. Don't you think we ultimately missed there hasn't been someone quite as diabolical as Malvo? And I really miss that in season four. I don't mind playing with the ideas that people are neither good or bad and people make good decisions or bad decisions, but they're not necessarily terrible people. You think that the big bad in season four will be Gaetano, but then Gaetano gets a heart. Or you think maybe it's going to be Orietta and she's going to come into her own in a very different way. But none of that really happens. And I think the series has suffered from not having a bad guy as good as Melvo. Yeah, season two doesn't exactly have that, but they have so many great characters that the Kirsten Dunst Peggy character, she's not a bad person, but she's so memorable for what she is. And yeah, and you have all the Gerhards who are competent to various degrees and ruthless. And and you know who's in season two that's almost like that is Mike Milligan, who's another just fantastic character. A speechifying character. I went back last night and watched some YouTube videos of just Mike Milligan's greatest moments and was reminded how much I liked him. Now, speaking of Mike Milligan, huge spoiler, if I hadn't done research for this podcast, I think I walked away and went to the bathroom as soon as season four ended and I missed the entire reveal until last night. So as I was looking, I was like, oh my God, Satchel is Mike Milligan. So there's a whole video, YouTube video of Mike Milligan's greatest moments. And in one of his speeches, he says the exact same thing his father says in season four, which is how I opened up this podcast, right? Which is that you're actually pretty unfriendly. It's the way that you are. You're so polite about it. It's like you're doing me a favor. So he has that speech that then comes back in season four with his father. We get to see how he chose to be named after Rabbi Milligan. And in a weird twist, even though his father was screwed over by the Italian family that creates the Kansas City Mafia, that's where Mike Milligan ends up going, thinking that he's going to be able to take it over. Yeah, I mean, we kind of predicted that in our family, that he was going to turn out to be Mike Milligan. But he was kind of a dip in the show. I couldn't believe it. When did he actually acquire a personality? I know the first time he had a line, I looked at my husband like, oh my God. He goes, yeah, but he's a kid. Kids aren't really supposed to be good actors. And I was like, come on. (laughs) Kids can be very good actors. But when he points the gun into the pickup truck. Yeah. He really becomes himself, right? I think that's this big moment where he has decided that he needs to, you know, take the power and assert. And that was a great moment for Satchel. That moment and the moment at the end when you see him reading the book that was suggested to him by, was it Hercules Swindell, which is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And if you look at that and then you look at Mike Milligan's character, it does ring true to that character change. 
Yeah, it's a very abrupt change. And I just think the actor couldn't pull it off. Even the gun scene. I was so checked out of it by then that like there was almost nothing the show could do. But I struggled with the Satchel character because I wanted him to actually do or be something. And he just had this blank look in his eyes constantly, no matter what was happening. This kind of so just like early Chris Rock stand up. Chris Rock is very harsh on his own early stand up, but I remember feeling like when I saw him on Saturday Night Live that this is just someone who has a blank look. And then he like got so much better, became, you know, one of the best stand up comedians in the world. I don't know. That is a mere coincidence, but I could not help but draw a parallel there between the very early Chris Rock and that child satchel and the grown up Mike Milligan, who is just so charismatic. There's something very about his eyes and his animation that's just so compelling. Bokeen Woodbine, right? That's the actor. Yes, that's uh, the guy. He's great. I thought he was just going to be like a superstar after that performance. And like, then I haven't seen him in much since, but that was a phenomenal just anchoring performance for that show. And he's more likable in a way than Lauren Malvo, but he has that same kind of, you know, I'm going to take over. And, and I love the irony of the end of season two, where he has achieved exactly what he wanted to achieve. And he just gets dumped in this corporate office. And now you're just in middle management at the end, which is a nice little side critique of a capitalist structure. Whereas like then season three just becomes all about that. Let's take a moment for a sponsor break. If you're like me, Amazon has become a lifeline during quarantine. But did you know that you can order your prescription medications through Amazon Pharmacy? It's easy. You already know how to shop on Amazon. Just set up your profile and medication needs with Amazon Pharmacy. Most insurance plans nationwide are accepted, but you can use Amazon Pharmacy without insurance. No need to wait in line for meds. Amazon Pharmacy works directly with your doctor to fill your prescriptions and delivers them to your doorstep. And if you have questions or you need advice, you can speak with one of their on-call pharmacists 24-7. Amazon Prime members can save on prescription medication when not using insurance and get free two-day delivery. Learn more at Amazon.com slash PrettyRx. That's A-M-A-Z-O-N dot com slash PrettyRx. Amazon.com slash PrettyRx. All right, let's get back to Pretty Much Pop. I'm interested to hear what you all think and to let you know what I think about where season five should go. Here's the thing. I don't know exactly yet where I want it to go, but I do want a female-centric just series for this. Because one thing that really grinds my gears about watching this show is they have some wonderful female characters. But the whole thing has been centered around organized crime, which has been traditionally male-centric, right? So even though we've had some great female characters, if you actually look at the character breakdown, at the actor breakdown, it's maybe 30% casting for women and the rest is men. So even though you have some awesome like leads, when you're talking about all the wonderful supporting characters that have a lot of color in them, that doesn't really exist for the females. They are either a big character or not in it, for the most part. I have some inside information on season five. Uh, three things that I do know about it. It is going to be based on a true story. Uh, the names will be changed to protect... No, sorry. <laughs> Never mind. I agree with you, Erica, and I, I think I would like to see them move away from the casting that they've been doing around a star. It, there's really nothing wrong with it, but it's so it is distracting in a way. And I think that we tend to sometimes not always see the characters because we're seeing the star, notwithstanding my comments about 
Chris Rock, but had I really had the same issues in season one. I mean, I don't just see a character when I see Martin Freeman. I see Martin Freeman because I know him from other things. It definitely detracts from the storytelling. So that could be part of what they do for season five, though I have a feeling it's such prestige television. There's going to be someone who wants to do it. So are you saying I thought the issue was that there aren't enough women characters unless they're, you know, a central character, the character actors, right? I guess Mary Elizabeth Winstead in season three, I thought she was the best part of season three, but she's a bit of a side character. She's not Carrie Coon. She's not Ewan McGregor. And Floyd Gerhardt in season two, she's really strong, but she's arguably a lead. Kirsten Dunst, she's phenomenal. Probably my favorite thing in the whole show. But yeah, season four, it's all male-centric at every level, both the main characters and, you know, I guess there's Ethel Rita, but that's about it, right? I would like it to go back to a smaller story because then if it's not about warring gangster families, then it's much easier to have both male and female character actors who you love and are invested in. I can't imagine it could be any more ambitious than season four in terms of what it wants to tackle. Like, I don't know what that would even be. Maybe involve like religion and corruption of the government. We haven't really gone. If it was following the wire sort of pattern of like, now we're going to, for a season, we're going to talk about the press. Now for a season, we're going to talk about the government. Like it could do a similar exploration of how crime interacts with various things. It's not going to get you a mostly female cast unless Unfortunately, it was all about like a group of prostitutes like the Deuce, which is, I think, not what you had in mind, Erica, if if they're going to tell this kind of story. I guess it could be in a convent and have organized crime in a convent. I don't know. Fargo Coven. Sorry. <laughs> well, they started to get into it a little bit with some of the characters this season. They went into, you know, a couple of females who were bandits. I can't say they were in organized crime. That's it. If you're talking about organized crime, it is hard to not cast a bunch of males unless there's a story I don't know about, which is all about female organized crime. Yeah. I just think it would be an interesting way to go. It would change some casting around. I think it would be fresh. Anyway, that's a big issue I tend to have, whether it's minority casting or female casting. Who are the actors who got the paychecks for this season? And there are a ton of people who got their sag after paychecks who are dudes. And that ultimately, the stories that you decide you want to tell, and I'm not saying we can't tell organized crime stories, but maybe we pay some more homage to those amazing female characters that have come in previous seasons. And we do something that's more focused on that type of story. And also, you know, I think what's so key to the success of the first season and the movie is you have this strong female cop that is battling the sort of sexist, you know, season one really leans into this, that nobody thinks that she can really run this, even though she's by far the most competent person in that department. They give it to Bob Odenkirk and yeah, and even Marge Gunderson is not taken seriously. And part of what allows them to be especially good is often that they're not taken seriously. And so they can use that to their advantage and you really gravitate towards them as people. And they, in both of the shows, you have this senseless world of violence and corruption and then you have them just trying to understand it. Like that speech that Marge Gunderson gives at the end is like all this for just a little money. And, you know, and it's a beautiful day. And 
it's all for this for what? Like they don't get it. They don't get why all of this is happening. And there's something sort of poignant about that too. And again, tied to the fact that they're women. So I agree with you. I'd love to separate from just who gets paid. I would just love to see that kind of story again, because that's what I really associate with Fargo, with what I love. I think also, Brian, to go back to what you were saying about stunt casting and stuff, I think one of the best things about this whole series and the big standout has been Alison Tolman as Molly Selverson. She was great. What a standout. Since the seasons have proceeded more away from Fargo, more to the South, since we're going back in time more, my season five pitch is there's a group of women of color who are slaves. They invent the cotton gin. Eli Whitney steals their idea. Their great-grandchildren eventually move up north. And there's some fighting in there. Well, and since we've had aliens and witches, I guess time travel and parallel universes, we got to get some science fiction thing in there. The other thing about season four is that it doesn't take place in Minnesota. And I think that's another thing I missed is just that region and having lived there for three years and having been the victim of these passive aggressive, somewhat often racist Minnesotan people, not that they were racist towards me, but you know, like I thought that's something that's kind of key to the show. And I get it. Noah Hawley is his own. He considers himself somebody who can break away from the Coen brothers. He has the talent to do that. But then it's like, why are we still doing Fargo? Why not do a different show? But yeah, for season five, I'd like to see them return to there because it's also with the existential or absurdist themes, just those vistas of just bleakness and those snowy landscapes. And it's something, again, that I think is so fundamentally a part of what's great about Fargo in general. I missed that a lot as well. Orietta, that's part of the reason that she was so lovable, too, is she still brought a little bit of that to us. But it made sense the more that I understood how they were tying it into future events. It made sense. But I agree, even though I enjoyed a slight departure, I would like for them to go back up north. And they had great production design on season four. That was one of the things I really appreciated about it. There was like episode to episode. It was kind of cool or scene by scene to watch. It just felt like I just didn't achieve anything it set out to do. Nothing paid off. There were no real payoffs for me. Yeah, we haven't really talked about the visual style and the choice of music and the direction. You know, I know it wasn't Holly directing them at first. I think, is he directing all of them in the later seasons? I, Not at all least of them, but a lot. Okay, but at least some of them, in, whereas season one, I don't think, I know there were different directors for at least the, the first bunch of episodes that I was looking at. But there was a very consistent style, obviously influenced by Coen Brothers, but especially since... You know, you have multiple characters, multiple plots, and like, let's open the episode with a very unlikely but likable musical number with sort of these boxes moving onto the screen of what the various characters are doing to set things up. Like, that's kind of the best part of the show. And I think something that is often it is criticized for, you know, why is it this long? Why is it drawn out? Is because it is so visual. It is so such an experience in that way. And I got to say, so I had an experience where I was catching up on Mr. Robot, wanted to watch season four. So I had to rewatch some of season three, fast forwarding a lot through it. Well, for preparing for this, it would have made sense for me to try to fast forward a lot through the Fargo episodes to like get to the later ones. But I didn't want to. Like they were all uniformly, even season three, sumptuous enough that I didn't want to kind of spoil it for myself <laughs> to potentially watch them later. I don't know. Even though I'd already seen them once. 
visually they're incredible. Filmmaking is totally brilliant. I think that's true for all the seasons and maybe even more so in season four than say season one, although season one is great too. Yeah, it's just like the style then becomes everything. I think the reason that gets criticized is because the substance doesn't live up to how great it looks. Yeah, it's empty calories. It's similar to watching these superhero movies and these big special effects that are pleasing. But if there's nothing behind it, that's a low blow. I, uh... More directly related, Holly's superhero Legion season two, which is basically like a series of music videos. There's very little plot to that season and it has rightly gone off the air now because it's all about creating these acid trip experiences. I don't know if anybody else sat through that whole thing, but it is the vices of this series taken a few steps farther. Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't watched Legion. Have have you guys? That's the... Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens. I saw the first half of season one, so... And with uh, Aubrey Plaza, right? Yes. It gets worse. (laughs) Oh, well, that's good to know. Mr. Robot is an interesting comparison because... That too kind of became, it always maintained visual brilliance, but the story and the characters just started to become less engaging. I would say less so than Fargo, but I also think maybe Mr. Robot didn't quite have the highs that Fargo did early on. I think that there's nothing else on television quite like Fargo that I will continue to watch it even after seasons that are not as interesting as others. And that's something that they have at least been able to maintain and probably, well, yes, it's largely the visual style, but I think it's also the quirkiness of the entire thing. I was watching the original film with my son yesterday who had never seen it or I guess he's seen No Brother Where Art Thou, some other Coen Brothers stuff. But after having seen The Dead Won't Die, which is also a cops kind of acting not as surprised as they should when... (laughs) crazy things are happening. Very much the deadpan style that has come out of Fargo. I feel like the quirkiness of this original film has become much more familiar and pervasive that it's a less surprising, interesting novel approach anymore. Does that make Fargo less necessary or partly explain, I think, why they don't lean so heavily on that in season four, that it it becomes more of a gangster thing? Yeah, that was never my favorite part of Fargo anyway. But yes, you're absolutely right. The movie came out in like 96 and that was the thing that everyone talked about. You know, oh, it's an execution type deal. Oh, yeah. And the stuff with the prostitutes and the escort and all that stuff is funny. And it's been done, maybe done to death by now. I don't think the show, even in the seasons that I really admired more, leaned all that heavily into that. If anything, they took it more seriously. There was, like what Mike Milligan says, there are the people who use the Minnesota nice in a kind of aggressive way. But then there's also the genuine goodness that can come out of those people who really mean it, you know, and who are polite and good deep into their marrow, you know, the core of their being. And I think it was sort of playing with both those kinds of types and less on the, oh, it's so funny how they talk. It has been said that the show is less condescending toward those people than the film was. I don't know if I buy that. I think the film, you know, has a very loving depiction of the main character and her husband. And the fact that they have these extra scenes of her being approached by the guy who liked her in high school. That's a weird freaking 
scene to include at all. That's what I wanted to ask. What do you make of that scene, the Mike Yanagita scene? First of all, why does she meet him in the first place? And then when you find out that everything he said to her was a lie, like, what do you think is the importance of that scene to the movie? To my mind, everything she gets wrapped up in, in terms of the crime, seems a little otherworldly. And like, this is not how normal life is. This is kind of the crazy crime life of someone who's a cop. And that scene tells us that even the normal life of hers is also pretty weird. It makes us understand that everything is off kilter in her world and not just what's happening with this crime drama. Yeah, I think that's right. And to support that, after the Mike Yanagita scene, and then when she finds out that everything he said to her was a lie, she then goes and confronts William H. Macy. So it's like, at first, I think his kind of weakness and passivity, she didn't really pick up. And now she realizes, oh, wait, these kind of weak, pathetic characters can also be liars, can also be like bad. And so she goes back right after that and she confronts him pretty strongly in a way that she didn't do in their earlier scene together. I almost wonder if she kind of thought, not that she was going to like hook up with him. She's like seven months pregnant and had seemingly no inclinations toward that. But it was something like, oh, I'm in the big city meeting somebody like she's kind of primping her hair before she meets him. I think she was sort of excited for the adventure of it, which reveals something about Marge that, you know, she's not just this homespun Minnesotan living in Brainerd. She actually does feel a little bit of that yearning for, for the cities, even if it's the Twin Cities and that life. So a much more subtle thing than like the Carrie Coon sheriff character in season three in 2010 saying we don't need internet in the police office at all. And that being a thing of nobody having computers set up and oh, we just call down to the county people if we want to look something up in terms of showing the relationship between the rural woman and her attitude toward the big city life and the, what all the future has to bring. I think the movie was more subtle about it than these TV shows that are sort of hitting us over the head with how how quirky the characters are. Yeah, I got I really barely remember season three <laughs> and Carrie Coon's character. I remember David Thewlis's teeth and then Mary Elizabeth Winstead's being great. Thewlis, right, toward the beginning has a similar thing to the Malvo thing where it's also an, an internet joke. I guess this is supposed to be reflecting back on 2010 from 2018 or whenever this was. They're trying to figure out who this gangster character is that they've borrowed money from. So they tell the lawyer to look him up on the internet, who clearly the lawyer doesn't like know how to Google something or even use a mouse. But as soon as he does, then just Googling this guy's name prompts him to download something, to download the information, which installs malware on the machine, takes a picture of him, and then someone comes to assassinate him. That is the new way that the Malvos of the world operate is you even express interest in them, then they will reach out of the screen and come and kill you. So I thought that was a pretty effective little move there. Tamler, you've talked quite a bit about your positive views of the first two seasons and, and the movie also. And one thing that I've wondered about is how the relative strengths and weaknesses of season one really rewarming a lot of the themes and images of the movie itself. Because we've gotten into this whole discussion of where does it go next? And the whole idea of we don't want it to be too similar, but we don't want it to be too different and retreading old ground. What do you see as the relationship between the movie and the first season? 
Yeah. This bothered a lot of people about season one. And watching the movie yesterday, I was frankly struck by, holy, sh- I, they took more from the movie than I even, you know, I think when I saw season one, I hadn't seen the movie for probably a, a year or two. So like, it didn't bother me that much. And I thought what they did kind of borrow from the movie, it was well done. It didn't feel like, oh, I've seen this before and it has nothing to add. It's just taking a great formula and telling a different kind of story with it, with incredible performances for everybody involved. So it didn't bother me, but I know it bothered some other people. And I know that season two is kind of the perfect, it still has a lot of elements. I think it's actually, it borrows more from other Cohen brother movies, but, you know, maybe less from Fargo itself. And it is a perfect kind of combination of the themes and the vision of the movie with what Noah Hawley, who is a real artist in his own right, was interested in doing. And maybe that's part of what makes season two, I think, the best season. But to answer your question, it didn't bother me as much as it bothered a lot of people how similar some of the shots and some of the characters and some of the themes were. I guess that's a good general question that I don't want to consider now, but kind of leave out there because we're wrapping up here is just like the Star Wars episode seven versus four thing. How much can you take similar elements and just shake them around a little and like, oh, it's echoes. I'm not rehashing because that I was completely bothered by like what this is now Martin Freeman doing the William H. Macy character basically with a different name. Like, I don't need that. And oh, we also have somebody running out in the snow from a car. We also have so many of these elements, but they do such interesting things with them in season one of the show that can just get past the fact that there are common elements and see those as an echo, a tribute, something that is supposed to make the new thing rhyme with the old thing as opposed to retelling the same story. That really opens you up. If you're okay with that, a lot of potential continuity, say, between seasons of the show, even, you know, I described the episode one and episode two, at least of having a similar structure, a similar function in each season. And maybe that's fine to have a formula or some elements as long as you, you know, do something interesting with it, create an original piece of art at the end of the day. Man, artists have just a million different ways of saying that there's nothing new under the sun, right? Man, it rhymes, it hits the same beats, the same notes, it's an homage, but it's like, oh no, we're just ripping off the same thing. The thing that most annoyed me about season one was when I realized, when it revealed that this really was the same universe. When I thought it was a remake or a reimagining, it was actually better for me. And then when Stavros were revealed that he found the scraper, you know, with the stash of money from the movie and it connects it together, I'm like, oh man, really? Now this doesn't make any sense at all. I thought, do one or the other, but don't do both. I don't get that. Why would that bother you? Yeah, I thought that was the part that people loved. Like, no, oh, it does connect. That's wonderful. It, it connects, but then if it connects, then why are we telling the same story? If you're just reimagining Fargo and starting over and like giving us Casino Royale the second time, and we're starting James Bond over, but to say, well, we are both connecting it to this universe and telling the same story, those seem to conflict with each other to me. Like, do one or do the other, but don't do both. But it's not exactly the same story, right? Martin Freeman's character starts out like William H. Macy, but then William H. Macy is not capable of doing some of the things that Martin Freeman does later in the season, I don't think. And there's no Lorne Malvo-like character in the movie. And Lorne Malvo is such a big part of season one. So 
I mean, I get what you're saying, but I thought that was just a fun Easter egg sort of for people who are fans of the movie. Like, it didn't make me think, okay, wait, this isn't the work that I thought it was. I think they had to take a gamble because there are certain people who would never have watched it if it were something similar to Fargo, but not called Fargo and not having any nods to it. And so, you know, some people wouldn't have watched it if it didn't have enough tie-ins. Other people are going to be frustrated that it has too many. But how many people are like you, Brian, who that would bother as opposed to how many people would not have tuned in if it was just something wholly fresh? How many people are like me? (laughs) (laughs) It was enlightening to me to find that this was the third time that they had tried to make it into a TV show and that the other two times were going to actually be, you know, a different actor playing the Francis McDormand, uh, Marge Gunderson cop character, because there is something so charming about that initial portrayal that, oh, wouldn't you want just this character to be something that you see solving mysteries on an ongoing basis? And I guess that was something that was conceived or piloted or something, but just did not get off the ground. And so we get this instead, which is probably better. It was going to be Edie Falco. The initial person who was set to be in it was going to be Edie Falco, which would have been a totally different but interesting Yeah, I also found that interesting, Mark. I had assumed that this was like Noah Hawley's brainchild, something that he came up with. What if you do Fargo, but you make it a series and you take all the themes? But it was actually not like you said, it had been kind of tossed around many times and he was approached with it. He said, what do you think? You try. Could you do this? And doesn't it seem like such a vision of one person? And yet he was almost a hired gun at first for the first, even though he's so in charge of it, it was not in any way, shape or form his idea. That was really surprising to me. Well, let's wrap this up. Thanks so much for joining us, Tamler. Any any final thoughts on uh we could plug something, you could say you could give additional recommendations for people that, that made it through this episode, other things they should check out. Well, if you like shows and artists that tend to borrow from earlier work, check out David Lynch's movies, which are often echoes of each other. And the Twin Peaks, The Return in season three, if you haven't seen that, holy fucking shit, is that phenomenal. And maybe my favorite work of art of the last 25 years or whatever. I was trying to figure out how, when you started that sentence, it was going to be Very Bad Wizards plug. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Oh, also listen to my podcast, Very Bad Wizards. Any podcast that has been on for more than a few years is borrowing heavily on its past work. We got our formula down. Our new episodes really rhyme with our old episodes. (laughs) Do you have this where I swear to God, I came to Dave with an idea to do a show on Memento and totally forgot that we had already done an episode on Memento. (laughs) Well, then you read your arm and realized that you did. Right, exactly. All right. Thanks, listeners. Folks can uh, let us know what they want to hear us talk about. Go to prettymuchpop.com. You can make comments or support us, etc. And thanks for joining us, Tamler. Yeah, thanks. I had fun. I enjoyed it. Thanks for being here. Thanks, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.